B H A always B B H hiring always be hiring Hello and welcome to the Always Be Hiring podcast. You are listening to Jonathan Graham. I'm with my business partner and very good friend Mike Price and today we have a special ghost special ghost special guest in the form of keith rosen unless of course you feel like haunting us keith how are you uh, i don't know my wife continually tells me i'm haunting her so uh... <laughs> what a great start to the day what a great start so listeners today we have keith rosen on the show he is the author of a book that we recently talked about on irc book club it is called sales leadership the essential leadership framework to coach sales champions inspire excellence and exceed your business goals why have we invited Keith on the show today? I'll tell you why, because Keith knows a lot about leading salespeople. And I think if you know a lot about leading salespeople, you're going to know a lot about hiring salespeople. And I, I, I'm really interested today, Keith, to talk about, in many respects, your view on hiring from a coaching and leadership perspective rather than a recruitment consultant's perspective. And I think that's why we've really got you here today. Fantastic. Looking forward to filling in the blanks. Good. Okie dokie. So um, I guess let's just dive straight in, shall we, Michael? Sounds like a good plan, Jonathan. Great. Okay. So often we tell clients that and we think that requirements are dictated around three key characteristics sometimes. Technical fit, vertical fit, and the person fit. So if you've got unlimited money as a client, a client can get as much as they want of all of those three areas. But very few clients do, particularly in the current job market. I don't know what it's like in the US, but in the UK here, we are in the lowest period of unemployment since the early 70s. No money's enough money at the minute. There's no. always a concession to be made in the, the hire that you make. Yeah, the, the clients have to concede something. So, you know, so the client has to choose something. What for you is the most important from a fit perspective? When it comes to hiring people, my sense looking at the global marketplace is while some companies are okay at it, no one has really mastered the process. No. And if they've mastered the process, guys, let's face it, then there'd be no turnover at all. No. So who, clearly there's gaps here. Why is, you know, I always look at it and say, you know, you can't just look at the beginning first. You have to look at, okay, you're in a situation right now. Managers come to us and they say, I'm struggling with the salesperson. I'm struggling with this direct report. Um, well, why are you in that position in the first place? Okay, that's your current state. You got to go back to find out the why. What's the root cause? And everything always beelines back to the interviewing process. It is. So to your question, there's three legs of a stool, okay? You have the recruiting and interviewing part, you have the onboarding part, and then, which I know we'll be doing a deeper dive in, is you have the ongoing coaching and development part. Yep. If any of those legs are missing from that three-legged stool, that person is destined to fail. Yeah, so okay. you need those, and if there's one of them missing, it won't work. So you could have the greatest onboarding process and the greatest, um, ongoing uh, coaching and development process, but you had holes all through your interview process, that person's going to fail. Conversely, you have a well-defined interview process. You have a brilliant onboarding process and then everything stops and there's no more coaching and development, failure. 
Yep. So in any of those scenarios, even, you know, again, even to the onboarding failure. So companies are, are typically, um, they're in balance when it comes to those three different quadrants that make uh, uh, hiring uh, really a bulletproof to hire the right people. Okay. Okay. So out of tech fit, vertical fit and personality fit, what do you think is the most important? I think technology is something that you're trained in. Uh, and I think looking at, you know, companies are made up of people, right? People, people define the culture. So uh, I find managers often are interviewing for technical fit or um, sales proficiency or experience. And I think right, right off the bat, they're, they're putting themselves in a greater opportunity to make a mishire. So yeah. to me, if you find the right person with the right EQ, the right IQ, the right desire to want to learn, to grow, uh, to be collaborative, to um, learn and want to contribute to their peers and cross-functional teams, uh, is wicked coachable, notice what we're talking about now. We have shifted away from the skills, whether it's, proficiency in technology or proficiency in sales. And look at what we're focusing on now. We're looking at characteristics. We have moved away from the what to the who. Yep. And the who is always more important than the what. Because if the foundation of that individual, if they are wired with the right DNA, everything else falls into place. Yes, it does. I mean, we had a really interesting conversation with a client this morning where their entire recruitment strategy is predicated on cognitive ability testing. And literally the only thing they care about, the only thing they care about, they, they recruit, what are they called? Heppels. Heppels, yeah. What, I can't even remember what it stands for. Highly... I, I tell you what it stands for. It stands for young and really clever. Young, yeah, young and clever, but we don't care what your background is. Um, mm -hmm. And what we find... It, we find them a very frustrating client because they have to take this test, this cognitive ability test, and um, the pass rate is very low. Uh, so you can have a great candidate who looks incredible and they will not get through the recruitment. They won't even get to an interview stage. And I was talking to the client yesterday about it, and when he, he's been a senior leader in the HR team there for a long time. And he was saying, when I first started, I was incredibly frustrated with it because we were finding it difficult to fill positions. But he said, now, actually, in a way, we're finding that very refreshing. But for the fact that actually what we're not filling is the really high level senior positions. So there's an element where I think almost there's a crossover point, Keith. You know, you can you can literally hire for the person to a point. But then there's a point in executive recruitment where at some point you have to hire the vertical fit. You have to hire the tech fit. You have mm -hmm. to hire a skill fit and an ability fit. And actually they have to, the likelihood is that candidate has to be more of a square peg in a squarer hole. And it can't just be about how coachable the guy is or, or so on. You know, that organization that they hire these heppels that they call them highly educated people that are up for it. Or I don't even know what the acronym is. And I think at the level that they're recruiting, you know, like the job, one of the jobs they've got is a 40K basic salary job, five years post-university experience, providing you can pass the test and you can speak in sentences, you'll get a job there. Um, but at those senior levels, 
for me, I think sometimes the client's got to actually put a very square peg in a square hole. Don't you agree, Mike? No. Why? I don't. I'll tell you why. Because I, I pers- so, so I'll give you a very good example. So a really good mate of mine, he's very bright, went to Cambridge, you know, top university, <clears throat> chartered accountant, management accountant. Uh, he started his working life as a recruiter. He placed legal execs or um, no. management accountants or something like that. You know, he, he placed professional people and he currently advises venture capitalists on right. whether they should buy a company. Right. Never sold ERP software. Could he sell ERP software? Yes, he'd absolutely smash it. But I tell you the thing, Keith, and you might be able to answer this is, so let's say we live in this idealistic world, you're my coach and I'm doing recruitment, and I say, right, okay, Keith, I'm going to go with what you say. I'm just going to hire people that are right for my culture. Uh, I'm 25 years as an IT sales director. I've done a fair few interviews, but how do I interview for culture, Keith? How does that work? That's why people don't do it. That's the hard bit. And, and I think in your context, Keith, that culture is for a culture, a coaching culture, which, you know, for our listeners, if you've read Keith's book, Sales Leadership, you'll realise what Keith is all about is building either coaching microcultures or ideally coaching macrocultures in an organisation that are all about the development and coaching of the individual so that you're not being what Keith sometimes refers to as the chief problem solver when managing those salespeople. So the question is, how how do you do it? Yeah. And just, John, I want to build up what Mike said is, you know, companies talk about um, core competencies. They don't spend enough time talking about core characteristics and they talk about having to have a growth mindset. Now let's take that up a little bit. You need to have a learning mindset. You need to have a coaching mindset. But how do you interview for that, Keith? What's that? How do you interview for that though? Oh, we're going to get there, my friend. We're going to go deeper. I just want to. <laughs> come on, guys. You're spoken like a true result-driven manager. Come on, guys. You got to work. You work. Come, on. Come, on. Well, come on, Keith. Let's get to the juice already. Well, yeah. the, the fact is, I mean, how many times, guys, have you you heard this phrase, um, people need to become more strategic thinkers? Yeah. Well, to me, that's that's the wrong question to ask. You need to be a strategic communicator. Because what precedes strategic thinking is how you communicate, not with others, but with yourself. And that starts with your internal conversation. So when you start shifting the way you perceive the world, when you start changing the conversations you're having with people and internally, you change the way you perceive the world. So I just wanted to make that point there that companies will often look at a resume and they'll look at their experience and they'll often make a decision based on what they see. And that is probably one of the biggest mistakes when when making a hiring decision. But it's difficult, Keith, you know, because... I agree with you, by the way, Keith. You are right. So we're talking around the point not to disagree, but so the listeners can can discern how they will get that result. The the challenge is the logistics around that. So if you look at a campaign I'm about to run, um, the nature of that campaign is such that there will be... uh, for, For this particular campaign, I'm going to get massive response volumes. Huge. And actually... There is no way I could manually go through and talk to every respondent. I know I'll get a big response to this particular campaign for various reasons. So I'm kind of contradicting the fact that we are in this low period of unemployment in the UK here. But the reality is the responses I reckon will be, I'll probably contact 200, 250 people. I reckon I'll get 30 to 40 responses 
And if actually each of those responses takes 15 minutes, I can't but take a very quick glance at a CV or a LinkedIn profile and have to make an executive decision accordingly on behalf of my client. This is the most important decision of the future growth of any organization. Yeah. And if any, other, if any organization does not make this a priority, then in 10 years or less, they'll be out of business. Because you cannot complain that, oh, I'm hiring these, and I hate the brand, and I don't use the word hate a lot, millennials, Generation X, yeah. come on, people, people are people, you know, and if managers are, you know, they come to, oh, I'm having, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years, I'm having a hard time connecting with these younger generations, well, that's not their fault, it's the manager's fault. They is. need to understand how to coach to individuality, not build robots. So it's really, to, to address your question before, you're hiring to see if they're a cultural fit. And if companies are truly looking to build a coaching culture, then that's the person who needs to truly fit not only in their thinking and, and strategy, but is that the type of person you want as a future leader of the organization? So actually, in many respects, what you're saying is it, if you want to hire for coachability, actually the first real hire that needs to be made is the sales leader. <laughs> well, it, it, it does all stop from the top, my friend, right? Avalanches do roll downhill. So, okay, so I'm the CEO of a company. It turns over 20, 25 million. And I'm going to probably have eight sales guys out in the field. And I've just got to a point where I, I can't cope anymore with keeping my eye on the sales team, keeping my eye on the dev team, keeping my eye on customer success. And I'm going to hire a sales leader. Okay. So what am I doing? I'm in the interview and I'm thinking, actually, what I need here is I don't a sales leader. How am I how am I going to get that coachability? How am I going to extract that essence mm -hmm. and yeah. that how yeah. am I going to extract that culture out of an individual in the interview? So right now, and keeping in mind, guys, I want to make sure, <clears throat> excuse me, we touch on those three quadrants, right? Right now we're gonna go do a deeper dive in the actual interview process to assess yeah. if they're a fit. And then we must, must touch on, on onboarding as well as uh, ongoing training and development and coaching because, okay. again, I if those two other parts are not in place, it's going to fail. So back to strategically speaking, how do you interview for culture? How do you interview for a cultural fit? How do you interview for skill, will, and who they are? Well, it all comes down to the quality of questions. And, you know, I hate to sound redundant if everyone knows the work I do, but, hey, here's a different line of thinking when you're interviewing people. You're not interviewing them anymore. You're coaching them. An interview conversation is, in essence, a coaching conversation. Think about it. When you're interviewing someone, you're looking to see what their strengths are, what their opportunities are, what, what, what skills they have that you see that they might not see that they can exploit in a positive way. But you're also looking for the gap. Is it in their thinking? Is it in their assumptions? Is, is it in their will? Well, wait a second. That's a coaching conversation. So if, if you're asking the right questions, and granted, there are many steps that need to be taken in the interview process, and we'll touch on that as well. But if you're asking the right questions, you're going to start, it's like, it's like sales. You're going to start qualifying and disqualifying people right away. And quite frankly, you're not going to even be doing the disqualification. When you ask the right questions, they're going to disqualify themselves. Yep. So why, why do managers miss this mark? Or why, does, why do sales leaders looking to hire other sales leaders miss this mark when it comes to the right questions to ask? 
because they're not taking an intentional stand on designing the right questions. And most of the time you'll hear things like, so tell me about your career history. Tell me about your skills. (laughs) If you redesign your perfect job, what would it look like? Uh, You know, if you were coming aboard here for the first week, what would you do? Uh, You know, help me understand, you know, what, what attracts you most about this job? Those questions, here's the thing guys. And this is probably the, one of the biggest um, causes of mishires is that most interviewers ask questions around strategy, around experience, and they don't go deeper because anyone in an interview can fake that. Yeah. I could fake strategy. I could fake, I could fake my um, acumen. I could fake my history. I could paint it a nice picture. But here's the thing, and let me give you a specific example. If I'm sitting there with a candidate and I really want to understand, okay, wait a second, anyone can fake strategy, but you can't fake this. You can't fake communication. So let me give you two examples here. Uh, you're interviewing me um, for sales management position, and you say, okay, Keith, you know, let's say it's uh, the first week on the job. You know, how would you describe your schedule over the first week? And I could say, oh, guys, first week, I'll tell you right now what I'm not going to do. I'm not coming in and changing anything. I want to come in and learn. I want to learn about your culture. I want to learn about your sales processes and all your processes. I want to have a better understanding of your customers and your ideal customer base. I want to have a better understanding of who your top performers are and those who are struggling. I want to speak to as many people as I can in the organization to really get a sense of what's working and what's not. I want to interview each person on my team to make sure that they understand how I'm going to best support them. And I know how they want me to best support and coach and develop them. So that's what I'll do during that first week. And once I have that, then I'll start putting together a process for continued personal and professional development of the sales team to ensure they're hitting our business objectives. Now you're thinking, oh my God, here's the job. <laughs> but here's the problem. Here's the problem. Then anyone can fake that. Yeah, they so can. Now, now, and they, now and they, they do, look, Keith. What's that? And they do. <laughs> well, and, and here's the thing. Then you ask um, what I call, you know, a situational-based question or a behavioral-based question. And that could sound like this. If you were to make a cold call to a prospect who you've never spoken to, what would be the steps you would take before making the call? Then what would it sound like? That's the question that pushes that candidate over the finish line to assess not only strategy, but the most important skill of sales leaders is their ability to engage and communicate. Well, if I ask someone, hey, listen, You know, if you have to call a customer who's, you know, on the fence and, uh, you know, they're thinking about leaving to go to one of our competitors, how might you approach that conversation? Well, I'm that customer, you're you. What would that sound like? People can't fake communication. And I want to throw something else, which is a massive miss amongst practically every organization. It doesn't matter whether you're a global sales organization or a small company, is that if, if companies are half adept, at interviewing, they'll ask some of these uh, questions in terms of strategy. And uh, maybe, maybe they'll ask one of those behavioral interviewing questions. 
okay, you have a, a direct report who uh, you're struggling with in terms of uh, a toxic attitude, or you have a direct report who's an underperformer, or you have a direct report who's a top performer, but they're not open to coaching and development. What would that conversation like when you approach them? You can't fake that stuff. Well, it's interesting, so, Keith, because actually there's a, le- there's a level and a layer further on there, which is actually th- what the really good interviewers sometimes do is they'll, rather than just saying, uh, how, what would that sound like? They would actually go to some specific examples based around that competency. So what the good interviewers do is they say, okay, so tell me about a time when you did X. Um, it's such a simple thing. What was, what was the situation? What was, the, what was actually happening? What was the action? What actually did you do? What actually did you say? What were your words? And what was the outcome of that? And very few interviewers actually do that. So the client sits there, particularly when they're hiring sales leaders, and I, I find they probably get bullshitted more from sales leaders when they're hiring than necessarily salespeople, because salespeople, there's some, a lot more binary. Whereas when clients are hiring a sales leader, are you any good at coaching people? Yep, yeah, yeah, I'm really good at coaching people, yeah. Great, brilliant. Next next criteria. Right. Uh, <laughs> well, wait a second. Oh, you're really good at coaching people. That's great. That's, that's wonderful. Here, can, can you share with me what your definition of coaching is? Yeah. And I Can you find- share with me what's, what coaching model do you use when you're coaching someone? I'll tell you what, I'm a coachee, you're a coach, here's my problem. Walk with me through what that conversation would sound like and the questions you would use. Yeah, but what's interesting, Keith, is in a market as candidate-driven as we're in, I think a lot of our clients, and in fact a lot of clients probably that aren't ours but that are still out there in the marketplace, are frightened of going that deep and are frightened of challenging an applicant to that extent. What do you think, Mike? Yeah, I'm having quiet. What's interesting, actually, Keith, is we'll come back to that question in a minute. What strikes me about this is a subject area is this is a subject area that you're quite passionate about. Keith or me? Keith. Right? Keith seems very passionate about interviewing correctly. Where's that from, Keith? Well, you know, because, and, and what a great, great question. It, it, oh, thanks. It's where everything starts, guys. You know, it's, you know, in my book, Sales Leadership, the big difference from coaching salespeople into sales champions, which was my first coaching book 10 years ago, is this is a much more globally focused, universally adapted, culturally both geographic and company uh, fit to help develop a coaching culture. So chapter one is all about not is the manager ready to coach, but what is your cultural readiness? What is your cultural DNA? Or is your company even prepared to make this massive transformation from a result-driven, target-on-your-back, KPI scorecard-driven, fear-based, result-driven culture? And are you really ready to make that fundamental shift to become a people culture, putting people before profit, putting people before results, to really make it a coaching culture and truly shift the entire language of an organization and how people engage? So, you know, so that's chapter one. Then it moves into all the skills, the frame set, the frame uh, framework, um, the mindset of what a great leader needs to do, adapt, and learn to be a great coach. So here's the thing to your question, Mike, is I could be the best coach in the world. But if I have a mishire, it's like putting the proverbial lipstick on a pig. Okay? Yeah, yeah. You okay. cannot make a bad hire, a great hire. You could be the greatest leader in the world, the most compassionate leader, 
an effective coach and always coming from your heart and the right place and positive intent. But you're never going to make a wrong hire or a great run, and you'll spend the rest of your career trying to do so. So, so let me ask you this then, Keith, on this subject. So, and this is a US thing, actually. It's you guys that sent this over to us. Is what quite a few of the US companies did was they built a mathematical model that they essentially modeled the behavior of some of their best uh, salespeople, and they said, that's our model. If we can get more people like that, we'll be home and dry, hence the psychometric test. How effective do you think a psychometric test is in assessing somebody's suitability for an organization? If you look at some organizations, they have 17, one, seven interviewing steps. Wow. No, uh, they don't. 17. And I actually, I'm not, I'm, I'm not against that, quite frankly, because this is the most important decision that a company is going to make. It's sort of like, you know, when you want to find your soulmate, one of the most important decisions you're going to make, you want to be with that person, you want to be happy and you want them to enhance and compliment you while you're with yeah. them your entire life. I, 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 so, I made that decision quite quickly, Keith. <laughs> I actually was just lucky when when my wife said yes when, when I asked her to marry me. Yeah. yeah, I told you that story, guys. When uh, you know several years ago, when my when my kids were sitting there in the kitchen and uh, uh, we're just having a nice family conversation, and uh, my my youngest daughter looks at me and she says, uh, "Hey, Daddy, um, you know when you married Mommy, uh, you know you married up." <laughs> <laughs> Very good. So I always say, hey, guys, if I ever want to feel really good about myself, I'll go work with my clients. Yeah. If I want to feel beaten down to a nub, I'll just hang out with you guys. You really humbled me. Thank you for that. Very good. So back to your point is, you know, you're looking at these seven steps, 17 steps. And then listen, it, that's one of the more extreme. But, but there's, there's something to be said about that because it's not only about putting each person through those steps to be that diligent, but it also becomes a process of self-selection. So I better really, really want to work for that company if I know that once it'll take me 17 steps to potentially get an offer. I better really want to work with that company. Keith, please don't be telling our clients that they need to start doing 17 interviews. And and also, Keith, I'm going to pick up on something here because I've got to tell you, I think the clients currently in the UK have a very fine balance between being too diligent and taking too long. And if you take too long, somebody who is quicker than you and less diligent by by definition will beat you. And you've spent, you know, they don't spend 17 stages, but you've spent a bucket load of time interviewing somebody. That other person has just been zoomed off the market by somebody else. So it's a very fine balance, I think. Yeah. I, I agree 100%. At the same time, I think, I think that's where companies um, need, and, and this is where I, I think you can't just open a book and say, okay, this is the proper way to interview. You, you know, when you open a book, it has to be, hey, you know what? Uh, is this a fit for my culture? Is this a fit for the people that I'm looking to work with? So, you know, agreed. It, it's, you can't wait too long. You can't over-engineer it because you're right. Competition will sweep in and, and, and go ahead and grab what could be a great candidate. They did. So Mike, uh, at the same sorry. time, just because it's 17 steps doesn't mean it has to take that much longer. You can get steps done. You know, it doesn't have to be 17 weeks, you know, and mm-hmm. interview process typically take. You know, one week, two weeks, three weeks, it's sort of like going to the gym. You know, are you going to go to the gym once this week or are you going to go seven times this week? And again, I think that that also speaks to, hey, you know what? You're doing seven things this week during the interview process. Oh, and by the way, this is how our culture works. It's really healthy, but if you can't move fast, you're not going to keep up. And that actually, by default, almost uncovers another core competency of, you know, how do they work in a, you know, high growth, 
fast moving organization. I'll tell you who and, um, does a lot of that, where the interview process is extremely multiplicitous, is Amazon Mike. Is it? massive amounts of interviews, but they're all phone interviews with this peer, that peer, this peer, that peer, this peer, that peer, loads and loads and loads of them over about... What do you think of the people that Amazon hired, Jonathan? (sighs) (laughs) Thanks, you just answered it. Um, Amazon have hired some good people. They've hired some appalling people. Amazon Amazon know that their brand is so good that the quality of people that they hire doesn't have to be great. But they would argue, actually, that they're hiring very, very much for culture fit. Well, the, a culture the Amazon must, way. their culture was very dramatically <laughs> based across the UK, because I know quite a few, but let's get right, they've hired some absolute crackers. But they've hired somewhere, I think to myself, you could hire better than that. Yeah, but AWS... Well, listen, every guy, listen, you know, a, a blind squirrel is going to stumble over a nut every once in a while, right? <laughs> just, just, just like a, a salesperson, you know, they could walk around blindfold and death, eventually they'll run into a sale. So they uh, will. You know, same with the manager, right? Eventually, they could make it just by sheer luck. When the stars were aligned, they made a good hire. I like. So I want to go back. Blind, to what you guys blind said. squirrel. I want to say what you guys said before about the um, the assessments. Yes, and go on. that to me is not the end all. I think it is one component of an interview process. I do not think it is something that you need to weigh your entire decision on. Because you guys, you guys, I'm preaching to the choir on this. You guys know as well as I do. There are certain people that a don't test well, B, test well, and C, know how to work a test. Well, I've got to tell you, you know, the testing system, I think there's going to be something come out because somebody who's going to get forced to take that test who's either got ADHD or dyslexic. Because if you were dyslexic right. or yeah. had ADHD, you'd, you'd fail that test, full stop. That's it, straight away. Exactly well, right. And, and, that's why, yeah. and there needs to be more of a holistic approach of how are you engaging with that person, you know, face-to-face, on the phone, through an assessment. Now, here's a big miss, guys. I want to make sure everyone... Here, here's this. One of the biggest misses I hear is while companies will assess possibly what we talked about today, if they're doing a decent job, they'll still miss the written acumen. Companies are not often testing for written acumen. How good are they at the core competency of writing? And today, when the majority of communication and sales is done through social media and digital communication and email. Well, I'm sure you guys have been in the same boat I am where I'll get an email from one of my clients or a VP and I'll look at it and I'll think, geez, when my kids were seven years old, they could have written a better email. Yeah. Yeah, I do agree with that. But the CV should be there to be demonstrative of somebody's ability to communicate. But it's like... Yeah, unless, unless they hired a professional writer to write their CV. Yeah. True. It's like I say, I think some companies are frightened to go deep. They definitely are. So here's one for you then, Keith. So you, you've hired somebody, you've hired Bill, three months in, you're thinking, listen, this fellow isn't right. And, and actually, uh, hiring badly is one thing, but holding on to somebody too long for sentimentality is another. And I think actually some people stay in jobs because their manager is just too sentimental to, or too whatever kind to fire them. At what point do you fire somebody, Keith? Uh, so what you just said is, I'm going to say in a different way. Managers get seduced by the t- that, bleh, managers get seduced by the potential that they see yeah, in others. Yeah, yeah, correct. And and in terms of that seduction, uh, you 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 have heard, I'm sure, many times the story I'm about to uh, allude to is. 
Uh, I'm coaching a manager. They say, okay, Keith, I hired this person a month ago. Um, they're doing okay. Uh, two months later, uh, the, you know, the honeymoon period is over and, you know, they're, they're really not performing at the level we expect, but I'm going to give them a little more time. <clears throat> okay. Three months goes by, you know, they're still not where they need to be. Six months goes by, you know, they're still not where they need to be, but you know, we invested a lot of time, energy and money into this person. We want to give them a long, you know, a little longer. Yeah. Okay. A year goes by, they're still not performing. Okay. So we're here. Where, where's the manager now? Now they're thinking, okay, I've invested all this time, money and energy. It's, it's going to definitely take me longer and it's certainly more expensive to go out and have to replace someone. As a matter of fact, one of my clients just told me and get this, it costs the company over $1 million to replace a salesperson in the field yeah, when they well, take everything. Surprise into consideration. Me. Doesn't surprise me. You've got a massive um, opportunity no, cost. Exactly. So, you know, when you're, when you're looking at, um, whether you're holding on to an underperformer three months, six months, nine months, a year, I've heard even two years to me, anything over 30 days of holding on to an underperformer is 30 days too long. I'm so surprised again, you said that. I thought, I thought you, cause you strike me as such a kind yeah. soul who's there to, uh, to look at somebody's coachability. I thought you'd come from a place of that. It's interesting, Keith, because I personally, as a leader, I have, I think it's a vanity. There's a, there's a vanity about, and I've done it. I've done it. Mike will tell you, you know, he still works with me, but he's tolerated it. I've done it on probably three or four occasions where I've been arrogant about my ability as a coach that I could turn around what in reality were very bad hires. But and again, that manager, if their ego gets involved or fear, yeah. is that they'll just try to. They'll, not only are they going to try to make a bad hire or a good hire, which will never happen, but think about the exponential cost. Yeah. They're no longer investing in the people who want to grow, who are coachable, who are going to help you achieve your business objectives, and they're investing all their time in the people, the squeaky wheel. Correct. And you don't invest your time in the squeaky wheel. You're not so, coaching your so top this, guys. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, managers tell me they spend all their time working with the underperformer uh, who may not ever want to change rather than the B and the A player who do. So what's the solution? Okay. Let's say it was a good hire. Let's say they did do well. And let's say for whatever reason they fell into a slump. Well, managers have two choices at this point. They'll get seduced by what they're hearing from their salespeople. And what that might sound like is, oh, guys, you know, Johnny, you know, Mike, listen, you know, I, I know I had a bad quarter uh, this, this, you know, this last quarter, but here's the deal. Um, I have this massive, massive client that's about to move <laughs> over the first line, and it just, it's definitely going to close in the next quarter. And what's the manager think? Well, okay, I need that deal. Well, yep. the next quarter comes and goes. Deal doesn't go through. Salesperson says, yeah, I know that deal didn't go through. There's a couple of issues internally um, with priorities and procurement. Um, I'm going to get it next month, but listen, um, I also know, you know, I kind of went MIA this last week. Um, I, I unfortunately, um, we lost a, a, a very um, a dear member of our family. Um, we, we had a we had a goldfish uh, and it died. So, <laughs> so uh, you know, we're still in mourning for that. And you're thinking, oh, this poor person, you know, they had a death in the family. Their little, you know, goldfish that people use for bait just died. I'll give them another week. And then another week goes by. Oh, you know, I had a personal issue at home, but, you know, I'll take care of it. And then another month goes by. Oh, you know what? I, I was sick, you know, but don't worry about it. I'm, I'm feeling better now. And then before you know it, you have this underperformer on your team for so much longer than they need to be. So yeah. to your point, guys, 
I'm the last person who's going to throw someone under the bus or put them on the infamous uh, and glo- globally universally failed strategy of the performance improvement plan. What I'm not, <laughs> what, that's not what I'm doing. What I am going to do is I'm going to put together a 30-day turnaround strategy. And this is going to demonstrate my commitment, my, uncommit, my unconditional commitment to my people. Because what a four-week turnaround strategy is, is simply a four-week intensive coaching strategy. Now, let's be clear here. If, if, if you're at this point, whose fault is this? Is this the underperformer's fault? No, it's the manager's fault. They, all roads go back to the manager. So a manager, how dare they get upset or frustrated with someone who's an underperformer when all roads go back to the manager yep. because the very, power is in them. Very few people are that noble, though, Keith. Well, and then they wonder why they're running into the challenges they are with their, with their direct reports. Mm, true. So here's, here's the, and I'm going to laser this um, hopefully in a couple of minutes, is when you take someone and, and you're not going to throw them on a pip uh, and an HR institutionalized process, you want to demonstrate your uncommi- unconditional commitment. So you sit down with this person and you enroll them in this 30-day strategy. And it's all about, hey, I want to take an unconditional stand for you, um, but you need to be committed to your career here. Here's what I'm proposing. Let's work together for four weeks. Let's set some measurable mind- milestones and, and results to achieve. And in four weeks, we'll determine whether or not this is something that's really a good fit for you, maybe another position within the company, or maybe another position outside of the company, and I'll support your decision regardless. So number one, you're setting intention. Number two, you're demonstrating unconditional support. And you're letting the person know, listen, wait, Keith, but our sales cycle's a year. Well, okay, fine, from one week to the next, you may not be able to measure the sale as, as, as a measurable uh, KPI, but there are other things that managers could measure. They could they could observe. They could they could um, uh, see what that person is doing in terms of activity um, or a pipeline. Uh, you know, uh, mm. act, forecast activity. Are they cleaning up their pipeline? How many meetings are they getting? How many calls are they getting? Are they organized? How are they working with their teams? How are they collaborating with their peers? Those are all things managers can observe. Yeah. So let's say that person on week one makes a commitment to achieve something on week two. Now. Side note, guys, for those of you that are putting people uh, on a turnaround strategy, which is documented in, in sales leadership, step by step, okay, don't set them up for failure, okay? Th- their confidence is probably at an all-time low anyway, so let's, let's give them a couple of things they can get a couple of wins under their belt. So here they are. The week goes by, second week, third week, fourth week. In every week, one of four things are going to happen. Number one. They honored all the commitments they made. Number two, they honored some of the commitments they made. Number three, they honored none of the commitments they made. Or number four, they didn't show up for the meeting. Yep. Now, you guys tell me, four weeks goes by. Four weeks, this person was fully committed and honored the commitments that they made. Congratulate them. Congratulate you. That's a successful turnaround. But don't stop there. Cheap coaching because obviously it's working. Now let's go to the antithesis. The person didn't do any of the work they committed to and they didn't show up for the meeting. Guys, you tell me, do you think something miraculous is going to happen on the fifth week? No, they're, they're on their way. So here's one, Keith. But, here, but here's the thing, guys. Who, who fired that person? Did I fire them or did they fire themselves? 
they find themselves. So Mike, exactly. I, I have a final question for you, Keith. You come at this from a, a, a paradigm of coaching salespeople. Not everybody does. But let's just assume our listeners that they've decided, right, I'm going to create a coaching culture in my business here. Is there such a thing as coachability? Are some people more coachable than others, Keith? Uh, the short answer is uh, it comes down to one word, uh, desire, uh, desire to change. Um, uh, we can overcomplicate and overengineer a coachability index, which I will raise my hand and say I successfully did that in <laughs> coaching salespeople into sales champions. Okay. Uh, and then I refuted it. I refuted it. You know, I'm in, listen, I own it in full transparency. What I learned is there's only one thing that people need to truly be coachable a desire to learn and grow, a desire to be accountable, a desire to want to be challenged. In not only in what they do and what they can learn, but also how they think. And granted, there are going to be some people that simply do that better. After all, you could have the greatest desire in the world, but it doesn't mean you're going to be playing for the NFL. No. So by if that core characteristic is present, you will then find out through the coaching whether they're not a fit in acumen, competency, EQ and IQ. Well, I think we can go, again, go back a step here, Keith, which is if in reality coachability is about desire to be coached and one, actually I think a client and our clients can make coachability a competency and they can make that desire to learn and that desire to be held accountable, they can make that a competency in the interview process. I think for me that's the conclusion of our conversation today, which is if you're recruiting – and you are a coaching culture. And if you're interested in creating coaching cultures, talk to Keith, read his book. It's really, really good. It's probably been the favorite one we've done thus far on book club. But I think for me, the conclusion is if you are recruiting and you're recruiting people and thinking, I've got a coaching culture in this business. We develop people here. We get more out. We, we, we make them better than they are. We bring more out of them. We add value to these people. And in turn, they bring value to us then you have to make that coachability part of your selection criteria and as a key competency. And that has to be a key competency that is defined and written and to which you have decided there are specific questions in an interview against which you're going to score candidates. And we, we can talk more about that when Always Be Hiring comes out in the months to come. But uh, overall, Keith, I think that in many respects, you've kind of summed up the whole thing really, really well. Thank you. And if I could just share a couple more points uh, for all the listeners out there, just be careful of being of falling into that trap when you're when you're a hyper growth company, or even if you're not, you just lost a top performer. One of the worst things that that the uh, the interviewer can do and the recruiter can do is hire from a place of need versus from a place of choice. Yeah. And every time you hire from a place of need, oh my god, I need to fill this position. You're going to compromise your integrity and you're going to compromise your standards, and it will be inevitable that you will hire the wrong person. Because at that point, if, especially if you're a sales manager and, and probably a pretty good salesperson, um, it's really easy to sell someone on the job. But the dirty laundry is going to be aired once they start working. So you're by default selling someone who has no business working there in the, at all. And final point is this, during your onboarding process, if that person isn't on their best behavior, if the company is not testing them 
through the onboarding process to see if they're getting it. Come on, this is the honeymoon period. If they're not on their best behavior now, it's only going to get worse. Good point. And yeah. the final the final point is, you know, and this is really for the the people that are out there looking for a job. Don't think for a second they're not going to your social media profiles to get a to get a deeper look at to who you are, what you write, what you say. Um, you know, your, your personal standpoints, because that's also going to be something that they're going to be intertwining into the uh, assessment of whether or not you're a good fit. And yeah. this part about writing is so important. I, you know, I don't want to step over this last part is, you know, managers, I've heard that people say, oh, yes, we give a writing test. We ask them to write a, um, a paragraph or uh, a paper on uh, you know, why, 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 they, why they should be working here. And what value they, they should bring. Well, guess what? You know what I'm going to do if I was that candidate? I'm going to go to my buddy or I'm going to go online. I'm going to find a professional writer. I'm going to have them do it. Yep. So it's not accurate. Here's what is. And let's end, let's end this one on, on, a, on, a, on a solid note. Managers, you have, the interview, you have the interviewee. You have the candidate. Another step in your interview process. Take three emails. You can pull them out or you can create them. You send them to that candidate. It doesn't matter if they're in the office. It doesn't matter if they're at home. You send them three emails. One email is about a customer issue. One email could be an internal issue. One email can be about a customer you've been working with for a while that's thinking about going to a, another competitor. 20 minutes, you have to respond to those emails and send them back to us. Go. Now, here's the thing. Number one, they can't go out and find a template online or ask their buddy to respond to that email for them. Number two, you're going to determine how effectively they work under pressure. And number three, again, you can't fake written communication. Those emails, I could tell you right now, managers tell me, have been the deciding factor between whether or not you hire candidate A or candidate B. So I, I like just want to make sure. It's a good idea, that, Keith. That. I like that. That's a really good one. Keith, that's been really great. Thank you. And, I, and I, I think that's a really good one. If you're a sales leader, you're thinking of being a better coach. Talk to Keith Rosen. He's a good bloke. He's been on the show twice. He's always good value. And more specifically, he's actually good at coaching people into being sales leaders. Um, Keith, thanks so much for coming on the show today. We really, really appreciate it. Always love working with you guys. Looking forward to our next collaboration so we can continually <laughs> deliver value to our worldwide sales leadership community. Love it. Cool. Love it. Lauren, roll the titles. <laughs> See you, well, Keith. Uh, cheers. They, Wishing you all extreme success. Bye-bye. As they say in lock, stock, and two smoking barrels, Keith, it's been emotional. <laughs> <laughs>